0: Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we have uh, somebody who does the work that we talk about on the show often, some of the work I try to do in my personal career and life. But we have Denise Smith with us today. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well, how are you?
0: Good, Good. We got, th- this is an interesting conversation because a lot of people who um, listen to this show, uh, we talk about HBCUs, we talk about the work and the, the product that they produce often. And we we see that sometimes they find themselves in a rut. And so what we're going to do is we're going to fix the problem in the next 20 minutes. How about that? Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so the first, my show is unique because in the first, we ask every guest the same first question. Um, okay. So we start each one of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And can you walk us through each of your career stops since finishing up in the Berg, I'm sorry, at SCSU? Uh, and why have you decided to focus your career work on HBCUs?
1: Um, that's an amazing question. Thank you for asking that. I, um was interesting, um, while at South Carolina State, I was a biology major I was thinking that I wanted to go to pharmacy school. And when I realized that that was not uh, really speaking to my soul, I realized I really wanted to do work in the community and health disparities research. And so um, shortly after graduating from South Carolina State, I um, jumped around to many different jobs. Um, I actually spent some time being a full-time substitute teacher um, in Beaufort, South Carolina, where I'm from. Um, And due to the recession, just found myself going back to grad school and ended up going to Morrill School of Medicine to get my master's in public health policy. Uh, And that is really where I learned and understood the power of policy and how policy and thoughtful policy development really changes things. And doing work uh, in the West End and understanding the inequities uh, that a lot of those people in that community are faced with. Uh, But doing a lot of work around substance abuse prevention um, and uh, tobacco prevention, Uh, asthma education, uh, really talking about environmental um, health issues was really how I kind of got my start uh, after leaving Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, And really being able to do that work with universities within the AUC, uh, working with student interns in the AUC was an opportunity for me to be able to build that relationship um, with the AUC since I was a graduate from the area, but also understanding the need to be able to create a pipeline and provide students with that opportunity. Uh, and that working with HBCUs and the AUC really took me to, to D.C. to do this work to focus on uh, tobacco-free campus policy work. In uh, and, and D.C., I worked for a national nonprofit called Truth Initiative, where um, I helped lead where I helped um, lead the HBCU initiative, which was an effort to really help tobacco, HBCUs become tobacco free campuses, um, but also not just um, trying to help them just change the policy, but I'll help them also educate the community about tobacco specifically, and not just cigarettes, but also like hookah, flavored tobacco products, and understanding the impact that vaping products were also having on on young people as well. Uh, And so doing that work to help build coalitions on campus, assess the issue, educate the community as well as leadership, um, but also teaching um, students to really understand the power of their voice was also a big part of that work for me too. And being able to bring them to Capitol Hill every uh, quarter to be able to talk to the congressional leadership about the work that they were doing um, was really important. And so understanding Uh, The need to talk about health inequities, uh, I also realized that there were also some financial challenges that HBCUs were also experiencing as a person that was giving grants to these institutions. And that really led me to wanting to understand the financial management of HBCUs and understanding how policy could really help address a lot of those issues. So I ended up uh, pursuing my PhD at Morehouse School, uh, at Howard University, excuse me, at Howard right now, working on completing my PhD um, And that really helped me really dive deeper into um, the policy issues when it comes to how these institutions are financed, how these institutions receive funding, um, but also how we look at financial aid.
0: We'll start with a a big question because you've been around and you actually, Morehouse School of Medicine, Howard and SC State. So you have definitely contributed your dollars and time and energy on these HBCU campuses to say the least. One of my first questions, big questions for you is can you help people understand why public HBCUs are so important?
1: Yes. I mean, public HBCUs are so vital. uh, When you think about what they contribute to um, the economic community in their states, I mean, I want to take South Carolina State, for example. They contribute over nearly $180 million in economic impact annually Mm. to Orangeburg in the state of South Carolina. They employ about 1,500 people. Um, in the the Midland area. I think when we think about um, the public institutions, they are um, the public and more affordable option for students in each state to be able to attain the education. And it's important that in order for those students to see that as a viable option, states also invest in these institutions in a way that uh, allows them to be able to provide amazing experiences for their students. Unfortunately, what we've seen over the years is that states have not invested as much huh. in uh,
0: their public institutions. That's, a, that's as well. an understatement.
1: Yeah, it's it's a vast gap when you look at state appropriations. If you compare a South Carolina state to a Clemson or a South Carolina state to a USC, um, just to, to name a few. And so, I think we have to understand the the um, the magnitude that uh, and, and what these institutions provide students. Uh, and, and what they're able to contribute to their communities, and also being able to, to tell the stories of not only the institutions but the alum that come from those institutions that are doing great work as well.
0: So, it, one of the more fascinating things about places like Albany State, like South Carolina State, they're not just, and I believe Fort Valley State, they're not just public institutions, but they're land grant institutions as well. And yeah. So. You go, yeah, that's what I, that was the question. So explain, explain to folk what that means.
1: Yeah, so within the public HBCU landscape, you have around almost fifty public HBCUs, but there's a smaller community of uh, HBCUs at about nineteen of them that are actually land grant institutions, and so these institutions were established out of the Second Mural Act to provide access and education to Black Americans in the late 1800s um, during Reconstruction era, and these institutions are critical for um, being able to provide support um, to educating students, but also nourishing the nation at the same time. Uh, These institutions are a small subset of universities that receive funding from um, the USDA through their farm bill. So this year the uh, reauthorization of the farm bill is coming up and these institutions um, not only educate students but they also nourish the nation uh, with the extension work that they do. And it's important for people to understand the significance of not only how they educate their students, but also the dynamic research that they're doing. Disparities research specifically that sometimes agencies don't necessarily see deem as valuable, but are contributing tremendously to issues in the Black
0: community. Let's talk about HBCU funding. We often hear that HBCU alums don't give as much. Um, we hear about endowments, but we don't talk. Uh, nearly as much about the state's role in funding these institutions. What has your research shown you um, about how funding disparities came about and how big of a hole are we talking about in terms of how much less public HBCUs get relative to their PWI counterparts?
1: That's a great question, Bakar. You know, a couple of years ago, I did a a report about um, HBCU endowments. And really just talking about how the endowment gap is so vast when we look at HBCUs versus their non-HBCU counterparts. And so when we look at public institutions, the endowments are three and a half times smaller than their um, white counterparts. When we look at private institutions, it's even smaller, so about one seventh of the endowment size. And so when we think about the endowments, when we think about state appropriations, uh, it's even more vast. I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars that these institutions don't receive in comparison to their counterparts institutions. Um, When we think about um, what these institutions put out as far as research expenditures and and the, the things that they contribute to the economy, the investment back into these institutions is abysmal when it comes to what they receive from their states. And it's important that we understand that the state appropriations data, the state contracts and grants that these institutions receive are completely Um, not even, you know, touching the surface of what their other counterpart institutions are receiving. And we have to really think about um, what their economic impact is and think about how these institutions are worthy of these funds Mm. from the state and really think about how we are creative with, you know, encouraging states to invest more in these institutions because these are their constituents. These are their own institutions that they need to see deem as valuable and worthy of investing in.
0: Wow. I mean... Yeah, you, you said a mouthful there, but basically we're talking about changing decades of cultural resentment that these legislatures have for these Black institutions. Explain for our listeners the non-federal matching funds issue that we've seen people talking about lately between the land-grant HBCUs and their land-grant PWI counterparts.
1: You know, so with this current uh, reauthorization of the Farm Bill coming up, Um, Just for people to understand, the Farm Bill is the bill that is reauthorized every five years so um, we can actually have the agriculture dollars that we need to be able to feed people in this country. And as a part of that funding, we also have SNAP programs that are also funded to be able to provide food to families in our communities. And a a small portion of that goes to the 111 land-grant universities um, within the land-grant system. And the 19 HBCUs that are part of that system receive funding to help with their education, research and extension work. And so what we have seen over the years is that as the federal government continues to provide support for these institutions, the funds have to be matched by the state one-to-one. What we are not seeing is that um, while, well, let me say it this way, 1862 or white land grant institutions always receive 100% match. But the land grant HBCUs do not always receive 100% match. And because of that, they have to file a waiver with the federal government as a signal to let them know that they have not received 100% of the money on the state level to sustain them. Because if they did not file that waiver, they'd have to get their federal dollars back, right? And so those institutions need that money. And so it's important that we understand the value of being able to provide 100% match to these institutions. Fortunately, South Carolina State and Fort Valley and states of uh, those institutions have received their matching funds over the last few years, but we are still seeing huge gaps in funding to institutions like Prairie View AM in Texas, North Carolina AT in North Carolina. And these are big time institutions in research. And it's important that we provide additional funding to these institutions because these are also some of the top. Um, research institutions across the country. These are the R2s, as people call them, are high research capacity institutions. And I know there's a lot of stuff that's in the media right now around this race to help HBCs become R1. And this is an opportunity to help continue to bolster those institutions. And we need to take it seriously in how we um encourage our, our friends in the state legislatures to support
0: these institutions. You're very good at this because that's a natural progression to my next question, which is so what can we do about this funding disparity? What are states like Tennessee doing and how are states and black legislators fighting back?
1: You know, it's, it's amazing to see what's happening um, as a, a result. I mean, there have been years and decades and decades of, of litigation have happened. We've seen it in Mississippi. We've seen a recent case in Maryland. Uh, and now we're we're um, seeing different approaches in Tennessee. They went through a legislative route and did a budget analysis to really kind of identify what that number was, right? And that's how we got that four five hundred and forty four million dollars number that was owed to these institutions, just going back into the budgets. I think it's important for us to be able to see the litigation and legislative routes as opportunities to be able to support these institutions. And it's important to have people in the state legislature that can support them. We're seeing in North Carolina, um, there is an HBCU bipartisan caucus that's been established to really help support and bolster funding to these institutions and make sure that they are considered when it comes to budget allocation, right? They are, um, this year I had an opportunity um, to talk with Senator Sonia Helpern in Georgia about her work as a champion for the HBCU study committee there and, and her push to be able to create an HBCU bipartisan caucus as well. Um, There's also talks of doing stuff like this in Tennessee. So I think we have to be able to see the importance of these institutions. HBCUs are bipartisan and it's important to have bodies within the legislature that can really help um, support and provide additional dollars
0: to these institutions. So why don't we all do like what Maryland did and just sue for our money?
1: I mean, that could be a route. I think if you go the route of being able to provide the, the dollar amount that is owed to the institutions, you have access to the information from someone within the legislature that can give you those budget documents. I think that that is a, a, a route, but I think what some folks are hesitant about is how long it takes for you to actually receive your money. But I think it's important. I mean, we are actually already seeing this in Florida right now, right, with them suing um, students and alumni suing the state for underfunding. This has been an ongoing fight with them because they're up against so much when it comes to Performance-based funding, when it comes to not receiving funding from their states, there's a lot of different things that they have to juggle. And so I feel like uh, if there's energy to support, to really, you know, try to get funding for these institutions, litigation could be a route.
0: We're both from South Carolina. So what has your research shown you about South Carolina and how the state has failed to adequately support South Carolina State University?
1: You know, outside of the Farm Bill, there are so many other opportunities um, that have not, you know, the state has not risen to the occasion to really support South Carolina State in the way it should. When we think about state appropriations per FTE, they're not even allocating the funds at the same rate for students at South Carolina State as, as they are for USC or for Francis Marion or, you know, Clemson University. I think that within itself, is a telling story about how you value the institution. I think it's important to also realize that when it comes to infrastructure, um, there has not been a worthy investment in providing funds to help our institutions um, be able to build out the campus. I was a student at South Carolina State when President Guinea was able to build Guinea suites and provide additional housing for our institutions. But I also remember the transportation center also being a big conversation and that building is so not built.
0: That requires a whole show.
1: Right, right. And So I think we have to really think about how the city of Orangeburg should, you know, embraces um, South Carolina State and embraces the idea of being a college town I think we have to think about how South Carolina embraces Orangeburg as being a college town and really seeing them as worthy investments, not only just for um, the, the farm bill, but also in how they appropriate funding to
0: support the, the growth of the institution and supporting the funding to its students. So is there something that Congress can do to actually adequately address this issue of states not funding our HBC, our land grant HBC? Is there, is there something we should be talking to? Uh King Jeffries, Kamala Harris, and Chuck Schumer. I, I
1: I honestly think that, you know, right now there's a lot going on in, in the budget. Um, Biden just released the 2024 budget. There's a lot that's happening um, to advocate for inst- inst- institutional capacity for HBCUs right now. I think that this is an opportunity for Biden to continue to push his equity budget. I mean, his equity plan and in his budget, really think about how he can adequately fund and address. Um, the, the, the the past wrongs for these institutions, I really think it's important for us to really hone in on the fact that we have to take equity into account when we are funding these institutions and come up with a new line item of mandatory funding that can account for equity. Because we've seen it in the media. We've, you know, the Forbes article talks about the state appropriation gaps, right? But what the Forbes article didn't talk about was the comparison in state appropriations to their white counterpart institutions. I think it's important that we really break down what these numbers look like uh, in comparison to, to ensure that these institutions get what they what they deserve.
0: Mm. You said a lot. It's a lot for us to chew on. Talk about what you're currently researching and how can people follow you and your research and support what you did.
1: Um, great question. So I'm um, currently am wrapping up a report that is a, a full form report that's kind of um, an extension of the op-ed that I put in, out in the Hill uh, last month that really breaks down not only the gaps in funding uh, through the state match, but also really being able to look at um, where are the other gaps in funding when it comes to state appropriations, when it comes to how these institutions are um, funded um, and really being able to break down the grants and contracts that these states are providing these institutions, and then also looking at the federal and state funding gaps to be able to provide recommendations and really give people that number of what it uh, how how underfunded these institutions are, while also making recommendations for how we can account for equity moving forward. Um, also, I'm just continuing to look into other federal and state policy avenues to be able to provide funding to, to HBCUs, as well as um, also just thinking about how we can have conversations about what could potentially happen uh, if affirmative action is overturned and how do we support
0: When, it. when?
1: You said it. <laughs> but we really need to think about what happens to historically marginalized students if this happens and where do these these students go? Uh, to get a quality education. It's important that we we think about that now. Mm. And then also just continue to to do the work to advocate for uh, funding through the Farm Bill um, as we lead up to the agenda being developed. I think it's important for people to know that, you know, this Farm Bill is like the Super Bowl for HBCUs and it's important for them to understand the, the significance of this funding uh, and what they do in their communities and, and support Black farmers.
0: Well, Denise Smith, I'm going to lean on you because. We're going to, we got something cooking, Jared Mm -hmm. probably told you here in South Carolina. Um, And I'm going to lean on you for that. Maybe we can fall in line with states like Tennessee and and Maryland here for our illustrious institution, South Carolina State. But not just on behalf of my show, but as an HBCU alum, let me say thank you for all the work that you have done, you are doing, and you will do. Uh, Denise Smith, thank you for joining the Bukari Sellers Podcast.
1: Thank you.